Well, I trust you had a, a good Christmas. Um, I want to look back. The last Sunday Sharon and I were here was December 15th, and we just had a great Esteban Christmas Day for us. I mean, the, the Sunday school program in the morning. Um, must confess, one of my favorite parts of that program was the Christmas video that uh, we saw. I don't know if you knew this or not, but Ava Gustafson is the one who did all the editing and all the patching and overlaying the voices with the lips. I mean, there's a lot of work goes into that. And it's one of those things like it's just a shame that it only gets to be seen once. So we might see it again sometime before January's over. Just one more shot. Um, I don't know when we'll put it in, but uh, we just had a great time in the morning uh, seeing the kids and the presentations and that sort of thing. Then we hung around, Sharon and I hung around for the day and we went to the Rotary uh, Carol Festival at night uh, at the United Church. That was great, the choirs and everything that were part of that. And then we went to see the lights, went to see the Festival of Lights. And man, you guys do lights really well. They used to, when we first got to Regina in 2001, SAS Power did something like that, but it fell by the wayside. So kudos to uh, you folks in Esteban for keeping that going. That was just a great, a great Christmas uh, experience for Sharon and I, and, and thank you. Thank you to those of you who uh, encouraged us with a, a Christmas card and, uh, and some blessings uh, along the way with that. We really appreciate that as well. Uh, this morning, we're going to uh, worship around the Lord's table a little later. We're also going to have, have a time of prayer, just kind of reflecting on 2019 and maybe a word of praise, thanksgiving, uh, acknowledgement from you as to how God has uh, shown his faithfulness to you. We'll give time for that a little later on as well, so you can maybe be thinking of that. But first, you may have noticed my pattern last year. We, for the first Sunday of 2019, we looked at Psalm 19, and so one of the things I like to do at the start of a year is find a psalm that sort of is memorable with the year, and then a place that you can kind of look back on over the year and kind of just remember some things maybe we need to remember about how God works and, and what he's up to. But I was having trouble this year. Um, so last year I did Psalm 19, and then this year I should do Psalm 20. 20 for 2020. Well, a while back I looked at Psalm 20, and I just looked at it, and I just drew a blank. I looked at it, and I thought, I read it through. It's only nine verses. I read it through, and it's like, I got nothing. I got nothing that connects. I got nothing that clicks. I'm not seeing any resonances. So I, so I went to Psalm 120, and I thought, well, 120 for 2020, that sort of fits my modus operandi, I guess you could say, for the first Sunday of a year. So I went to Psalm 120, and I thought, yeah, 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 no. So then I went back to Psalm 20 again. I was like, oh, nothing's clicking. But then I thought, no, I, stick, I need to stick to the pattern. I need to, maybe it's an age thing, right? You need to stick to your routine. You know, this is my chair. I sit in my chair. This is the way I do the first Sunday. I need to do the first Sunday that way. <laughs> none of you have that problem, right? Those of you that are over 60, none of you have that problem? Okay, just checking. Um, so I went back to Psalm 20, and I read it a few times, and I started doing some of my research on it. I came across a statement by one of the commentators that I really respect, one of the commentators I really enjoy, and he said this about Psalm 20. He said, it is the most stirring of the Psalms. And I went, well, I got, I got to be missing something. 
I, I, this guy is, is a great comic. Derek Kidner is his name. He's from uh, the United Kingdom. And I've always found him helpful, very practical and so on. And I thought, well, if Kidner says this is the most stirring of the Psalms, I got to be missing something. So it was, it was just time to dig deeper, time to reflect a little longer. And I think sometimes that's, there's a good lesson there for all of us when we come to a passage of Scripture that maybe just doesn't resonate or, or just seems to kind of fall flat. Um, there's a, time, there's a, a timing thing to it in terms of God's timing, I believe. And certainly there's the belief that all Scripture is profitable, that all Scripture is inspired and is profitable. All, and so it's kind of sometimes I just got to look a little deeper, uh, think a little deeper, reflect a little longer. And it almost felt like, in the end, it almost felt like this psalm kind of chose me, as opposed to me choosing the psalm. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 20. If you're working with the Blue Bibles, page 508. We're going to read it through and then just uh, a few comments along the way to help us uh, understand what's going on and and some ways to connect with... uh, what God might be doing in our lives in, in the coming year. Psalm 20, page 508. Now, as I'm reading through this, kind of a couple things to watch for. Watch for pronouns. Watch for you. Watch for we. Watch for I. And that will have something to do with sort of how the psalm plays out. Psalm 20. For the director of music, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you when you are in distress. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and grant you support from Zion. May he remember all your sacrifices and accept your burnt offerings. May he give you the desire of your heart and make all your plans succeed. May we shout for joy over your victory and lift up our banners in the name of our God. May the Lord grant all your requests. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They are brought to their knees and fall, but we rise up and stand firm. Lord, give victory to the king. Sometimes translated, God save the king. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. Now, as I first started looking at this psalm, I thought, well, it's, it's a typical psalm of, of prayer. It's a typical psalm asking God for something. But the more I got into it, the more I realized the first five verses are actually not addressed to God. They're addressed to a, a particular person. And it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a, a wish prayer. Um, I'll sign off sometimes when I, I send Christmas cards. Um, may you know God's best in the coming year or something like that. Another way of saying it, I wish for you God's best. And, and so you're, you're kind of blessing the other person, right? You're blessing another person uh, with a prayer, uh, with some hope, right? And so that's kind of what these first five verses are. The congregation, or probably more... The, the singers, right? Within the uh, division of labor within the temple, there were priests and there were Levites, and within the Levites, there was a group of people that were singers. 
And so the singers represent the congregation. Now you realize in the temple that the congregation is spread out. The men are in one place and the women are in another place, right? That's kind of how the things were divided back in, in the day. So, so in, the, in the worship and in the, the ceremonies and the rituals that are going on, the singers are singing to this individual. It's not addressed to God, because obviously verse 1, may the Lord answer you when you are in distress. So who is the you? It's obviously addressed to someone who needs help, someone who needs encouragement, because what they're doing is, is they're blessing this person. They're encouraging them to, to trust God, um, to realize that God will be faithful to his promises. And it seems by the time we get to, well, for sure, verse 9, the individual that they're addressing seems to be the king. Lord, give victory to the king. Verse 6, um, the Lord gives victory to his anointed, which is a way of viewing the king. So it seems like, so here's the scenario. The singers are singing to the king. Not our usual picture of how the Psalms work or how, how worship worked in the temple. So the singers are singing to the king. What has probably happened, it seems like the distress, the problem, the difficulty, was that, that the Israelites are going to war. Whether they're on the defensive, kind of somebody's attacking them, or they have um, an initiative to, uh, to do battle with some other nation or, or whatever, they're going to war, and that seems to be the distress. And so the king has already had his time of worship. There were certain things the king was to do before going to battle, and part of that was offering certain sacrifices, uh, certain um, uh, liturgical things to be done. And so the king had his own sort of protocols before going to war. So what seems to have happened in the temple, this psalm, the king has sort of observed his rituals and the ceremonies that he's supposed to do, and he's offered the sacrifices he's supposed to sacrifice. And now the people, the Levites, are singing to him, affirming, confirming, encouraging him that God is faithful, that God will honor the steps he has taken. And so the wish, the, the prayer, the may the Lord answer you, may he send you help, May he remember all your sacrifices. May he give you the desire of your heart. So that I, I think there's a tendency for you and I when we see phrases like that in a psalm that we think, oh, that's, that's for us to sort of identify with that. This is the word to the king. This is the word to the king as he's going out to battle. And the desire of the king's heart needs to be to, to, honor, to honor the Lord, to glorify God, to be faithful to God, and so as the king has gone through all these ceremonies, sort of in preparation for battle, making himself ready for battle, and making the people of Israel ready for battle, um, these reminders are of God's faithfulness and God's promises. And it's kind of, a, kind of an affirming thing. I told you I've done some, some running, a couple marathons, and a few half marathons. And What I like about the Queen City Marathon, when they set it up in Regina, is they, they actually hire people, uh, well, hire volunteers, which means they're not getting paid, but they're, they're, they're um, strategically placed along the route, and they just cheer you on. Um, first time I, I experienced that, it, it was really cool. Um, and you kind of you get used to it, and it's very, very enjoyable, and they're, they're just cheering you on as you run by, and the more the, the run goes on, the more appreciative you are. 
And then I got so used to these encouragers being along the way, then I'd start joking with them a little bit, and I'd come up to them and I'd say, okay, is this the place where you take my bib and you continue on for me and finish the race for me? But they, none, none of them bought into it that much. But uh, encouragement, it, it, I mean, it's, it's huge. It's, it's important. And so what they're doing here is they're affirming, they're confirming, they're encouraging and assuring the king that his faith is not misplaced. May we shout for joy over your victory. Victory is a word that comes up a few times. It's come up in some of the songs we've sung this morning. Um, but it, it is a literal victory, right? It, it is a, it's a setting of warfare. Um, and they're anticipating the victory that God is going to give them. Banners were a part of the, the victory celebration. Banners were a part of warfare. Now, in, our, in the 21st century, banners, are a part, banners and flags are part of what? Banners and flags are part of sports. It's your rider flag on your car, a little banner, right? It's in, the, uh, it's in the stands at the World Junior Championships, right? That's where you see the flags and the banners. But in this day and age, banners and flags were about warfare. And these were the banners of victory and celebration that was anticipated. So you, you get a little sense of what's happening here as, as the singers who represent the broader congregation are sort of singing back to the king to say, your faith is not misplaced. Your trust in God is not uh, foolish. This is, we're in this, we're in this together. There's kind of a, well, the three musketeers, if they actually said that, all for one and one for all kind of thing. There's that feel to this sort of thing. Um, a movie back in the 1990s, uh, uh, a sailboat. Can't remember the name of the movie, but there's a bell on the boat, and the and the theme on the bell for the ship was "Where we go, one we go all." Great model for a church: "Where we go, one we go all." And that's that's kind of the the feel for Israel here. And and as, as there's, I mean, I don't know. Do you think the kings really need encouragement? Do kings and national leaders really need to be encouraged? I think we've got a, a sense that most, uh, most world leaders and most, even back in the day, right, of, of Jesus' day, whether it's an emperor of Rome or whatever, I think we think they're pretty self-sufficient. But it's an interesting picture here that what's happening, and it doesn't happen too we don't see it too often. You, you could find it in, um, if you wanted to read Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 20, Jehoshaphat is going off to war. And there is kind of this back and forth where the people affirm, uh, affirm the king and his decision to go to battle. But that's kind of how things worked in Israel. Much more of a corporate sense. Much more of a collective sense. Much more of a we're in this together sense. So I, th I think it's a good picture for us at, at the start of a year that... Yeah, leaders, leaders need encouragement. Leaders need encouragement. I, I hesitate to make too close of a connection here between this psalm that's talking about the king to talk about leaders and pastors. I know far too many leaders and pastors who have Messiah complexes already. They don't need that to be affirmed. But leaders need encouragement. Pastors need encouragement. We all need encouragement. It reminds me of what we studied when we were studying the book of Hebrews, right? 
Hebrews chapter 10. Let us encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day, day is capitalized, all the more as you see the day approaching. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. As we understand the Lord's return is nearer and nearer, that's the idea of the day. But the day doesn't just include God's return, the Lord's return. The day refers back to the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was two things. It was judgment and deliverance. And those didn't happen on, in one moment on one day, right? There was a whole process enveloped in that idea of the day. Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. How important is a word of encouragement to you? Well, don't be surprised it's that important to your leaders as well. So that's the first five verses. And, th and so the last part of that refrain from the singers is, May the Lord grant all your requests. And then you got verse 6, you notice the personal pronoun. Now this, I know, it seems like, okay, here's the testimony of the king. The king has heard the, the encouragements from the singers, from the congregation. Now this I know. The Lord gives victory to his anointed. That's him, the king. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary with the victorious power of his right hand. Indications are that this is sort of the king saying, thank you. Now I, I know I'm assured of the faithfulness of God. It's a very confident statement. It's a very, um, a very bold statement. Kind of reminds me of Romans chapter 8, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? That kind of idea. And he's kind of just saying, yeah, if, it, if God is for us, who can be, if God is for me as I lead, who can be against me? It's, it's also maybe... When we studied the book of Joshua back in May and June and into July, the opening part of Joshua, the Lord says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. This is kind of what Joshua's answer would look like. This is the, the voice of someone who has been told to be strong and courageous. Now this I know, the Lord gives victory to his anointed. He answers him from his heavenly sanctuary. So there's that sort of... Uh, response side, the flip side of what it means to be strong and courageous. But I think one of my hesitations around Psalm 20 was how do you, how do you take this confidence how does that confidence not become arrogance? Right? And if this, if this is a psalm about going to war, how do you take that confidence and not make it sound like triumphalism? How do you take the assurance and make sure it's not just self-assurance? How do you take that trust and make sure it's not presumption? How do you take that confidence and make sure it's not self-confidence? How do you keep your confidence from becoming arrogance? It's like I've run into my share of Messiah complexes in church leaders. I've run into my share of arrogance in churches as well. It's, it's a tough one, right? How, how does our, our trust in God not become presumptive? That's what Jesus' temptation was about, right? Satan has said, here's these three things to do. And Jesus says, no, because he saw through them as presumption. And they weren't trust. As much as they sound like trust, as much as they sound like you're depending on God, 
you're taking a step on your own without God's help, without God's endorsement, without God's approval. If you read those challenges from Satan carefully, ask yourself, how did Jesus know? Because, boy, you read them when Satan says, here's a verse from one of the Psalms. If you cast yourself down, he will protect. How is that not trusting God to do what the Word of God says? Don't just breeze through that kind of stuff. Think about it. Think about it. You take a verse from Scripture, and you and I will say, that's it. i got to do it. Well, that's what Satan did. Here's a verse from Scripture. Jesus knew it wasn't his. Just because it's from the Word of God, there's all kinds of other things at play here. So, how do I avoid... How do I live confidently without living arrogantly? How do I live with confidence in God, but that's not confidence in me? How can I know I'm right without having to let everybody else know I'm right? That's what's the difference between confidence and arrogance? A confident person understands their abilities and they take on challenges. A confident person will be realistic about their limitations and a confident person will ask for help. An arrogant person won't ask for help. I don't need help. I can do it on my own. This is the way. A confident person will give credit and praise where credit is due. The arrogant person just wants people to know they're right. And they were right. And they told you so. A confident person does not celebrate being right and does not brag. I don't think I have to tell you what the flip side of that is. A confident person knows they do not have all the answers and they know they need others. But the confident, it's, it's important. I mean, that's the whole thing of, of going to battle, right? He has to be, be sure of that he is doing what God wants him to do. But at the same time, it's not just on his own, not just on her own. It's, it's confidence in God. And verse 7 maybe helps sort that out a little bit because now, now the singers come back in and the congregation comes back in because you see in verse 7 it's the word we. Some trust in chariots, some trust in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Back in the day, horses were a sign of wealth. And almost every nation that the children of Israel faced had horses and chariots. Almost every battle they were engaged in, unless it was a battle that was in the mountains or in the hills, was a battle of against horses and chariots. It was sort of state-of-the-art warfare in the ancient Near East. I know that's hard for us to grasp with all the state-of-the-warfare stuff we hear about almost daily in the world, but it was horses and chariots were state-of-the-art warfare. You were almost assured of victory if you had horses and chariots. 
And Israel had been told back in the beginning, back to Deuteronomy chapter 7, back to Deuteronomy 17, the Israelites have been told, you're not going to accumulate a standing army. You're not to accumulate horses. They were not to accumulate the weapons their enemies had. Talk about a disadvantage. The kings of Israel were not to accumulate stables of horses. Some of them did. Some of you may remember Solomon. Some of you, if you're going to read 2 Chronicles 20, you'll hear about Jehoshaphat's horses. Do not put your trust in horsepower. Okay, that's 3,000 years ago trust. What's, what does our trust in horsepower look like? Well, sometimes literally it is horsepower. What's under the hood? That's kind of, we love our big engines and the horsepower, and that's how we determine what vehicle we're going to buy. So, but it's, it's way beyond that, right? What's our horsepower? The resources, the material resources, the physical resources, the financial resources we have. Trust in our pension plans, trust in Canada pension plan, trust in old age security. Trust in our savings account, trust in our line of credit, trust in our credit cards. We trust our house will last long beyond us. We trust in our abilities. How would I know if I'm trusting in my own horsepower? How would I know if I'm, I'm trusting in my material resources? Well, one of the ways is when I ask God for help, I say amen, and I go and do what I think I should do with the resources I have. Right? That's, that's probably a pretty good indicator that I'm praying the prayer, but I'm depending on my own horses. Turn to Jeremiah chapter 9, uh, page 706 in our Pew Bibles. Page 706 in the Pew Bibles, Jeremiah chapter 9, a verse that's echoed in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. This is what the Lord says, Let not the wise boast of their wisdom, or the strong boast of their strength, or the rich boast of their riches. The wise, the strong, the rich. Kind of covers all the categories. The mental, the physical, the material. But let those who boast, boast about this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Hmm. But those who boast, boast about this, that they understand and know me, that I am the Lord, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for in these I delight. In Israelite warfare back in the day, there wasn't a lot of kindness, right? Let's leave that out for sure. But justice and righteousness was, was a key factor. But for you and I in the 21st century, how do I know if I'm on the right track? Well, I don't know. I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For in these, I delight. So we come back to the congregational singers. We trust in the name of the Lord our God, verse 7, and then verse 8 of Psalm 20. 
They are brought to their knees and fall. That's the enemy. And we rise up and stand firm. That's, that really, we saw that in, in Simeon. When, when Mary and Joseph brought Simeon to the temple, Jesus to the temple and they met Simeon. Simeon said this, this child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel. That's how God works. Those who are arrogant are brought low. Those who are humble are raised up. And the singer's real. They are brought to their knees and fall. That's the enemy. But we rise up and stand firm. God raises the humble. He raises the afflicted. He raises the poor and the poor in spirit. And that's how the Israelites are seeing themselves. The arrogant and the proud are brought low. That's just how God works. Eventually. Eventually. And finally, their prayer. And this is directed to God. Lord, give victory to the king. Answer us when we call. And now, on the very last line, the people and the king are all in the same boat. Answer us when we call. We are absolutely and utterly dependent upon your faithfulness. In your bulletins, it talks, it just has the line, what do these stones mean? It goes back to our study in Joshua. And so as the, as the singers, the Levitical singers have sort of reminded the king of the faithfulness of God, uh, that God is faithful, his promises are sure, they can be trusted. Um, I thought this might be a good time for us just to kind of look back on 2019 and word of praise, uh, word of thanksgiving to God. Uh, Keegan is going to be my runner this morning, but... Uh, Joshua and the Israelites, okay, see if I mess this up, the green light, the green light's on, that's good, Luther, right? Okay, thanks. Um, the Israelites, when they crossed the Jordan, were told to gather 12 stones as a memorial. And so sometime back in June and over a couple Sundays, we all piled stones up here. Uh, maybe you can see yours, there's been a few that have been added since then, but how has God been faithful? What do these stones mean? These stones mean God can be uh, trusted, that he is faithful. We sang about that this morning, too. Just a word of testimony, a word of praise, a word of acknowledgement. Uh, how has God been faithful in 2019?
Great. Thanks, Susan. As Keegan takes the mic to Graham, um, around the um, table pre-service uh, pre prayer time with the worship team, uh, Matt was joking about me doing changing things around and can mess everybody up. So if you're hesitant to talk and it's not your usual time, that's okay. Thanks, Graham. <laughs> Thanks, Graham. Thank mm -hmm. you. 